Good morning. It's good to be with you all today. Had a great time at the Valentine's Banquet. Um, having to pray through and forgive Kyle for not giving me the point, which we all know that I deserved. It was rightfully mine. But uh, I've incorporated that into my sermon at least three times today, Kyle. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> we, had a, we had a great time last night. We really enjoyed it. It was a wonderful time to, uh, to just celebrate our students and support them as they uh, prepare to go to camp and just continue, even now, to pray for those, uh, those teenagers and our children as they get ready to go to camp in June, um, that God would you know, begin to work in their life and that there would be something just amazing that happens through that. Also, I uh, want to thank you for praying for my grandfather. He continues to uh, just improve. He's still in rehab, and he's going to be there for a while. But um, just, you know, God's doing some really good work through the, the medical attention that he's getting there. So pray, uh, we thank you for your continued prayers. Uh, last week, um, we talked about the importance of living, <clears throat> excuse me, of living revived. We talked about how revival is not a shot in the arm. It's not a flash mob. But God's expectations are for us to live in his presence and his glory forever. And that's what revival is about. And we know that that is not just for our benefit. You see, when we abide in Christ, then we are made alive through him and through his spirit. And then his spirit overflows from us. It confirms our discipleship and produces fruit in the world around us. We know that God is going to allow us to get to that point where we realize that he is the only solution. There is nothing else in this world, nothing else in your life that can bring life in, in, in um, just joy or just his power into your dry valley other than him himself. And he will let us get to that point where we realize that and we must surrender to him in that place. We know that we won't experience life when we hear God's word unless we allow God's word to bring order to our life, unless we respond to the order that it brings, and we know that we will uh, live revived when we worship God in spirit and in truth. We talked a little bit at the end of last Sunday about this interaction that Jesus had with the woman at the well, and how he told her that you know life would come up from within her, sprawling, uh, over, overwhel- overwhelming her, and overflowing into her life, and in a way that she had never experienced. And that would only happen because of Him. And when we worship Him in spirit and in truth. That is how that happens. We must order our lives according to his word, and we find our life in his spirit. Now, as we begin to unpack what that might mean for us individually, it could be a little intimidating. We might look and say, well, all right, well, I need to change this, or I need to stop that, or I need to start doing this. And when we begin to look at the amount of change that might be ahead of us through uh, this transformation that Christ wants to bring into our life, We might start to wonder, I hope that we wouldn't, but it might happen that you might say, well, you know what, maybe I'm not ready for revival. Maybe I'm not ready to be changed. Maybe I want to stay in this place because it's familiar. Maybe I'm comfortable in my current circumstance. But what we must realize is that God calls us to more. God calls us to leave that old way of life, which we know is not a way of life, it's a way of death. God calls us to leave that and then enter into the life that can only come from Christ. In Romans chapter 6, it says that means you must not give sin a vote in the way that you conduct your lives. Don't give it the time of day. Don't even run little errands that are connected with that old way of life. Throw yourselves wholeheartedly and full time. And like, it's like Paul gets so excited about this point 
that he adds a little parenthetical statement. He says, you got to throw yourselves wholeheartedly in full time. And he's like, and the reason you do this is because remember, you've been brought from death into life. You've been made alive. You've been raised from the dead in Christ. And so you bring yourself, you throw yourself wholeheartedly and full time into God's way of doing things. He says, sin can't tell you how to live. After all, you're not living under that old tyranny any longer. You're living in the freedom of God. I've told you before that the only authority and power that sin has in your life is what you give it. Christ defeated it on the cross. It is dead. You are the one that puts power or influence into sin. And God says, don't give it a vote in how you run your life. I love that directive. I love just the way that the message translation words it because often we might you know, try to, okay, well, what are the best options? What are my opportunities? What are the choices that I have to have? Don't do that. Don't give sin a voice in how you live your life. Only listen to the voice of God. Only listen to his word. Let him speak to you and let that be the only thing that you hear. Throw yourselves wholeheartedly and full time into God. He says, sever yourself completely from that old way of life. Because you have been brought from death to life. You see, we've been, we've been talking about revival and kind of the theme or the order that we've been discussing. We started off with discussing the need for revival. And then we talked about some of the requirements for revival. Last week we talked about the importance of living revived. It's not just a momentary thing, but it's a lifestyle. And today we are going to talk about now that I know that I need revival, now that I know the requirements for revival, now that I know that I must live revived, I must realize and acknowledge that now, today, is the time for revival. That I want that to come in this moment. And I don't want to live another moment outside of the life that God can bring. So as we begin to dive into our uh, message today, let us just surrender to God. Let us give him this time. Let us give him the, the authority to speak truth into our life, to confront us with his word. Let us set aside all of our distractions, all the burdens that we came in here with. Let us just be in his presence this morning. Father, we come to you today and we thank you. We worship you, God. You are worthy. You are worthy. You created everything. You hold this universe in your hands. And yet you know me. You love me so much that you sent Jesus into this world to die for me so that I could be connected with you forever, that I might live with you forever. God, in this place today, Lord, let us all surrender to that truth. Let us all acknowledge the love that you have for us, God, and, and let us lay down our burdens and our distractions, not to pick them back up again, God, but we cast them upon you because you care for us. We leave them with you, Lord, and in, in the place where you know, we have that void that we were holding on to, those burdens, Lord, replace and, and fill that space with your spirit and your life. God, we are here and we prioritize you. We focus on you. Your presence is what we desire. Your life is what we desire. Show us what it means to walk in that life. Show us what it means and what is required from us. We thank you for this, God, and we ask that you confront us with your truth and let us obey and follow after you. In Jesus' name, amen. So 
One of the things that you've uh, probably noticed uh, throughout this series so far, and you're going to continue to see, is the role of prophets in the connection with revival. Our uh, text today comes mainly from the book of Haggai, and Haggai is a minor prophet. He's only two chapters long, but let me tell you, he, he, I told the, the first service that they're short, but there's a lot of heat in those two chapters. And uh, we're going to talk about some of that today. And it's interesting to me when I think about the connection that prophets have with revival. Because God, he used his prophets to speak warnings to the people. He used his prophets to go and, and speak the alarm, to raise them from their sleep and their stupor, to, to tell them about the judgment and his wrath that was coming. It was never, it was most, mostly never, a good message when the prophets came to town. Like if you saw a prophet coming in, you knew something was wrong. You knew that God was getting ready to send, you know, his judgment. It was so rare, in fact, that a prophet came only with good news that in Jeremiah 28, when Hananiah tries to tell the nation of Israel, they're in Babylon, they're in exile, and he says, oh, it's only going to last two years. God's going to break this burden after two years. And Jeremiah says, no, 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 hold on, wait a minute. He says, all the prophets of old, they all deliver a message of wrath. They all deliver a message of judgment. It's not unheard of to think that a prophet would speak peace, but only believe the prophet who speaks peace when peace comes. So when we look at this this book that Haggai brings and that he speaks, we're going to talk about some today and some next Sunday. We need to recognize, we need to receive it with the understanding that God is ready to confront something in our lives. There is something that he wants to change. There's something that he wants to bring out of us so that he can replace that thing with his life and his power and his spirit. And so let's, let's dive in. In Haggai chapter 1, uh, the first two verses, it says, In the second year of Darius the king, in the sixth month, on the first day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet to Zerubbabel the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Thus says the Lord of hosts, These people say that the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. Now, we need to understand the historical context of what's going on here to really catch the weight of what this message says. You see, Haggai was a prophet in the years after the exile. So you remember that they spent the Israel because they had um, been worshiping other gods, because they had been prostituting themselves to other gods and and other nations that God sent them into exile in Babylon. And they were there for 70 years. And then after that, King Cyrus allows them to go back, a certain portion of them, and they go back to Israel to rebuild the temple. He says, I'm going to send you there to rebuild the temple and the city. And they had been there for 15 years. And God speaks through Haggai right here, and he says, you've been here for 15 years, and you say the time has not yet come to rebuild my house. And I say, well, what what happened in those 15 years? Now, certainly the, the people around them, the surrounding nations were not happy that Jerusalem might get rebuilt. And Ezra, it tells us that the people around them actually would bribe other tribes or other uh, nations so that they would come in and try to attack the Israelites as they are rebuilding the city and they're looking to rebuild the temple. They frustrated them and made them afraid to build. And so they say the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of God. But we need to understand this a little bit more. This is a severe and great rejection of God. Because, let's think about it. Remember, we know that the temple is not a building. It is the seat of God's presence. 
It is where he manifested himself among his people. And 70 or 85 years before this, because they had been worshiping other gods, God allows Babylon to come in, take them into exile, destroy the city, and destroy his temple. While they are in, in exile, God teaches them and shows them that he is the only way that they can experience life. He is the only way that they are going to be restored. And when he does restore them, when he brings them back to the place where his temple is, where his presence could be, they refuse to prioritize rebuilding his house. You see, in neglecting the temple, they are rejecting God. They are saying to themselves, they are saying to their families, they are saying to the nations around them, we don't need to be in God's presence. We don't need God among us. We would rather not have God in our presence. They are choosing to reject him. They are choosing to deprioritize being in God's presence. They are saying it's not a big deal if God's not around not a big deal to not have God manifested with us. They had gotten to a point where they were satisfied with God in general instead of God in their specifics. They had gotten to a point where they were happy with God in the vicinity around the area and not God in their midst. You see, when we talk about God in general, what that means is, you know, God's there. He's in the atmosphere. It's a good day. Having God in our midst is when we, have the, when we experience the manifest presence of God, where his power is evident in our life, where he is working in us, where we have experienced his power and his spirit in a sustained way in our life. God in general is you know, those, the head knowledge that we might have about God, the things that we've read in his Bible, the things that we've heard over the years in church, that you know, God is omnipotent, he's all-powerful, he's omniscient, he's all-knowing, he's perfect, he's holy, He's unchanging. He's, uh, you know, he's, he's full of grace and he's full of love. You know, God is good all the time and all the time God is good. These are things that we understand in our head and that's, that's, that's okay. But I want you to know, I don't want God at a distance. I don't want God in general. I want God in my midst. You see, God in my midst says, I know that God is all powerful because when my daughter's and my wife were near death, God performed a miracle. That's how I know that God is all-powerful. I'm not reliant on head knowledge. I've, I've experienced his power, and I know it to be true. I know that God is all-knowing because in that place of des- desperation, when I was afraid and I didn't know what was going to happen, God knew exactly what I needed. He knew exactly what I needed to hear. He knew exactly who needed to deliver that message to me. He knew exactly how I needed to hear it, when I needed to hear it, where I needed to hear it, and he met me there. That's how I know that God is all-knowing. I know that God is perfect, not because of something I've read or something I've heard, but because God had a perfect plan for my son to be born and to be brought into my life, confirming that he is my child and meant for my family. I know that God is holy, not because I've read it or because I've sung it, 
but because I have experienced the weight of his presence to a point where I cannot stand up, where I cannot say a word, where he speaks in me and through me and for me. I know that he is holy because I can only cry out, holy, holy, holy. I know that God is unchanging because in my life, whenever I have gone to him, every single time he has met me where I am. I know that God is good all the time, and all the time God is good because every time I go to him he gives me love, he gives me direction and he gives me protection let me tell you, I want God in my midst, I don't want God in the vicinity but the only way the only way that we experience God in our midst is when we prioritize his presence when we prioritize him you see the nation of Israel They had gotten to a point where they were satisfied with God in general. They said, I don't need God in my specifics. They felt like their religion, their ritual was enough to keep God in the area. I don't want God next to me. I want him over me. And religion, for the sake of religion, it doesn't honor God. It marginalizes him. It pushes him to the periphery. It sets him to the side. It's all right, God, I'll, I'll, I'll pull you in when I need you. No, I want God with me all the time. All the time. You see, I have a fear. Some of you are in here today trying to apply your general God to your specific burden. I want you to hear me today. You will never experience life in your specific burden until you have a specific God. Until you have him in your midst. Until you prioritize being in his presence. You need to hear that this morning. You see, the nation of Israel, they hadn't prioritized being in God's presence. They were looking for his blessings, not his connection. They were looking for him to provide for them. They weren't looking for a relationship with him. Haggai goes on, says, And the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai, the prophet. Is it a time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses? Well, this house lies in ruins? So God says to the people, he says, wait a minute. You're going to tell me that it's not yet time to rebuild my house, but you have rebuilt your house. Not only have you rebuilt it, but you remodeled it. You've got panels on the wall. You're going to tell me that the nations coming against you have stopped you from building my house, but it didn't stop you from building your house. You've prioritized yourself. You've prioritized your needs. You've prioritized your flesh over my presence, over my house. This indictment is is cutting. He says, You say that you don't have the time, but what you're saying is you don't have time for me. What he's saying is you you don't have time for my presence. He says you're focusing on yourself instead of me. He says you're focusing on your me time instead of your quiet time with God. It's easy to fall into this pattern because... We know that when we enter into the presence of God, when his presence comes over us, change will happen. Transformation will occur. 
And many of us, no matter how difficult our circumstance is, no matter how heavy our burden is, no matter how much pain we are experiencing, those things are comfortable, they are familiar. And we say, when I invite God's presence into my life, I know those things must change and I'm not ready for that. I'm not ready for the change that God's presence will bring. But listen, when we resist the change that comes with God's presence, we are rejecting his presence. We are rejecting God himself. We are giving him the hand and saying, you stay at a distance, God, because I'm not ready for your presence in my life. God's word says in 2 Corinthians 5 that if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old has gone and the new is here. In chapter 3, it says that when we with unveiled faces contemplate the glory of God, it is by that glory that we are transformed into his image. You see, his presence brings change, and when we resist the change, we reject God. We must invite the change. We must welcome the change. Even if it's going to be uncomfortable, listen, the change is necessary. It is necessary. In Ephesians it says, but that is not the way you learned Christ, assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. You see, we are called to be renewed in the spirit of our minds and to put on the new self, which is made new in Christ. But that renewal will never happen until we prioritize being in God's presence. You will not be made new until you are in his presence, until you prioritize it, until it is a focus of your life. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 6, verse 33, he says that you need to seek my kingdom and my righteousness first. And I've said this before that, you know, when Jesus is talking about it, it's not saying that, you know, okay, we'll put my, my righteousness and my kingdom first in a long or even a short list of things that you prioritize. He's not saying it's first out of 10 things. He's saying, no, it is first out of everything. There is nothing else that you pursue. My kingdom and my righteousness, they have primacy in your life. That you seek me, you seek my kingdom, you seek my righteousness, and nothing else. Nothing else. And yet what we do is we find ourselves in a place where, okay, well, I'm going to put God first, but then, you know, I'm going to seek God for a little bit. It's the first thing I'm going to seek, but then I got these other things I've got to seek too. That's exactly what the Israelites were doing. That is exactly what they were doing. Seeking God and other things. And when we seek other things in addition to God, what we are saying is, God, you are not enough. Let me tell you, he's enough. He's enough. He says, seek my kingdom and my righteousness first. If you want to be made new, prioritize being in my presence. Prioritize me. But we so often seek after the world, and Jesus warned. He says, whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? You might be familiar with that saying, he loses his soul. See, there's a reason that there is a theme of firsts in the Bible. 
The firstborn out of a flock, the firstborn of a, of a lamb, uh, of a sheep would have to be dedicated to God. The firstborn in a family would be dedicated to God. God tells us to give him our first fruits. He says that I am your first love. And it's because he, he is teaching us through these lessons that he should be in that primal position in our life, that first and only position in our life. Not a, it's not a sermon about giving, but the example applies. Do you know that the average Christian only gives God 2.5% of their income? 2.5%. Scripture tells us that we are to give God 10%. And so we come in here and we say, God, help me. We come in here and we say, God, you know, help me in my situation. We come in here and say, God, you know, I need you, I need you, I need you. Would you help someone that robbed you 75% of the time? In Malachi, God confronts the people about their offerings. He says that they are polluted. And they ask him, well, what do you mean our offerings are polluted? He says, you bring me sick animals. You bring me animals that are blind. You bring me, you bring me offerings of, of, of animals and, and sacrifices that they're, already, that they're almost dead anyways. He says, it doesn't cost you anything. And you're robbing me, is what he says. Malachi chapter 3, he says, will, you, will a man rob God? And yet you were robbing me, but you say, how have we robbed you? In your tithes and in your contributions, you are cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. He says, bring the full tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house, and thereby put me to the test as the Lord of hosts. If I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need, I will rebuke the devourer for you so that it will not destroy the fruits of your your soil and your vine in the field shall not fail to bear, says the Lord of hosts. Then all nations will call you blessed for you will be a land of delight, says the Lord of hosts. Listen, I'm not preaching about tithing. But I want you to know that God can do more with your 10% than you can do with 100. Okay? All day, every day. You just need to take my word for that. God doesn't need your money. It's not about the money. Like He, he uses gold as concrete. Okay? The Bible says that he owns the cattle on a thousand hills. So your tithe or your offering is not about the money. It's about the condition in your heart. He says, when you prioritize me, when you put me first, I will bless you till there is no more need. I will rebuke the devourer. I will protect you. If we want to experience God's life, if we want to experience his promises, we must put him first in everything. In everything. So how do we know that we are not putting him first? We know that we are not putting him first when we live a dissatisfied life. But no matter how much we have, it's never enough. And Haggai 1, continuing, he says, Now therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, Consider your ways. You have sown much and harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages does so to put them in a bag of holes. God says, consider your ways. 
you are working and toiling with nothing to show for it. You eat, you eat, but you're always hungry. You're, you drink, but you're still always thirsty. He says your efforts to, to save, it's like as you put your money in, it's put, you're putting it into a bag of holes. Have you ever felt like as you're trying to save, like you just see unexpected expense after unexpected expense after unexpected expense? God says, put me first. Put me first in everything. And I will pour out from heaven until the nations call you blessed. Until the nations call you blessed. You see, God sees you where you are. And it is not impossible to live content, except contentment is only possible through Christ. It's the only way that we can live a satisfied life is in Jesus. You know that, that verse that we're all familiar with and we love it, you know, I, I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength, Philippians 4.13. I've got a, um, a, a shirt that I wear to the gym, and it says that. But let me tell you, that verse may not be true when it comes to lifting weights, maybe. But, but I think it's an illustration of how we take that verse out of context. Because we think, okay, well, I've got this big burden, or I've got this big project, or I've got this situation in my family, or I've got this thing that's coming against me. Oh, well, you know what? My Bible says I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength, so I've got this. That's not how Paul wrote it. What Paul wrote was, I've learned what it means to be content with plenty, and I've learned what it means to be content with little, because I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. You see, what he's saying is it doesn't matter if I am in jail, in chains, facing death, or if I am, have been released by the angels who shake the chains free and I am with my friends and I am with my, my co-believers in Christ, I am content in all situations because of Christ. There is nothing that we can do in our life to bring satisfaction or contentment outside of Jesus. We must seek him instead of the world. Elsewhere, uh, Paul tells Timothy that godliness with contentment brings great gain. And so if you look at your life and you're saying, well, I'm struggling in contentment or I'm struggling with godliness, then you need to look at your life and say, where does God rank? Where is he? Is he your top priority? Is he your only priority? You see, if he's on your list but not at the top, you might be in the same situation that the Israelites were in. They were pursuing, like I said, they were pursuing his benefits without the relationship. They were looking for him to bless them without surrendering to him, and he judges them for it. Thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Go up to the hills and bring wood and build the house that I might take pleasure in it and that I might may be glorified, says the Lord. You looked for much, and behold, it came to little. And when you brought it home, I blew it away. Why, declares the Lord of hosts, because of my house that lies in ruins, while each of you busies himself with his own house. Therefore, the heavens above you have withheld the dew, and the earth has withheld its produce. And I have called for a drought on the land and the hills, on the grain, the new wine, the oil, on what the ground brings forth, on man and beast and all their labors." So God is telling the people that their work was fruitless, that, their, that as they were toiling, that they were not going to receive a harvest because his house lay in ruins and the people were focused on their own homes. 
He says that he would shut the heavens or had shut the heavens down. There was no rain. There was no produce. There was nothing because of the, the way that the people were acting, because they had chosen not to prioritize him. But there's a greater judgment in this section than anything that we've talked about so far. Because at the beginning, he said, God said that you have to go into the hills and get wood and bring it back to build the house. But when we read the other books in the Bible that were written at the same time, what we see in Ezra chapter 3 is that when Cyrus sent the Israelites to Jerusalem to build the temple, you know what he did? He gave them wood to build the temple. He gave them the wood. So why now, 15 years later, does God say, you need to go get some wood? Because they used the wood that was supposed to be meant for the temple. They used it to build their house. They used the blessing that came from God. His provision in their life. They used it to gratify their flesh instead of glorify their Lord. And I will tell you that this is an epidemic in the church. That we seek God for his blessing. That we cry out to him for his provision. But in the midst of the blessing, we refuse to bless him. We refuse to acknowledge that the reason he blesses us is not so that I can have a comfortable life, not so that everything can be fine with me, but so that I might go out and declare the goodness of who God is. God says, you want my life, prioritize my presence. See, when we treat God this way, we objectify him. We communicate to the world that God is only there to to, to meet our need, not because God is holy, not because he is perfect, not because he is God. How can we ever ask God to bring life to us if we are not willing to surrender ours to him? How could we ever ask him to do that? How can we say to him, give me life under my terms? Give me life and and meet my needs without any surrender or total surrender on our part. You see, when we do that, we are no better than the Israelites who used the temple or the wood that was meant for the temple on their own houses. And as punishment, we can expect the same thing that the Israelites received. We can expect a drought. We can expect our circumstance to get worse. We can expect judgment in our life. Let me tell you something. If I get to that place where I have used the blessings of God for my own self instead of for his glory, you know what I want God to do? I want God to judge me. I want him to correct me. I want him to rebuke me. I would much rather him do that now than wait until I die or until he returns And then look me in the eye and say, okay, John, I've got a bone to pick with you. I I would much rather be confronted in my sin today than then. Right? I would much rather God give me the opportunity to choose to bow my knee 
instead of then when he will force me to bow my knee. See, I want and we must desire to be corrected in this way. We must welcome that change that comes with the Lord. Now, I want you to know that we are not without hope. You see, in addition to Haggai, God also spoke through the prophet Zechariah at the same time. Zechariah was a contemporary, meaning they were prophesying at the same time. And so I want you to turn with me to Zechariah chapter 1. We're going to read verses 1 through 6. If you're following along in version, you'll see it there as well. Zechariah, it says, in the eighth month in the second year of Darius. So we know that Haggai, that message was given in the sixth month of the second year of Darius. So this is written, what we're reading now is written two months after what we were just talking about with the temple. It says, in the eighth month, in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, the son of Iddo, saying, The Lord was very angry with your fathers. Therefore say to them, Thus declares the Lord of hosts, Return to me, says the Lord of hosts, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. Do not be like your fathers, uh, to whom the former prophets cried out, Thus says the Lord of hosts, return uh, from your evil ways and from your evil deeds, but they did not hear or pay attention to me, declares the Lord. Your fathers, where are they? And the prophets, did they live forever? But my words and my statutes, which I commanded my servants, the prophets, did they not overtake your fathers? So they repented and said, as the Lord of hosts proposed to deal with us for our ways and deeds, so he has dealt with us. God is giving the people a solution. He says, return to me and I will return to you. He says, turn from your wicked ways. He says, turn from your evil deeds. If you want me to return to you, if you want me to to send my presence into your midst, there must be change. You see, returning to God without repentance is impossible. It cannot be done. You see, what we need to understand is that we must return to God. God, And and, and so what, what we're seeing in Zechariah, when God says, return to me, what he's saying is because you haven't prioritized my house, because you haven't rebuilt my temple, that shows that you haven't returned to me. He says, you've only returned to the land. You haven't returned to the Lord. Some of you might be in church this morning, but have you returned to God? And that returning to God can only happen with repentance. Repentance is so much more than just an acknowledgement of sin. It's more than just confessing sin. You see, it's more than just something that we say in our mouth. It's an action. It's an abandonment of what we have done. It's turning and going the way that God would have us go. In Matthew 3, it says that we must produce fruit in keeping with repentance. Repentance is is about a change and going in the direction that we are called to go. One of the most beautiful pictures of repentance is found in Psalm 51. David wrote Psalm 51 after being confronted for raping Bathsheba and murdering her husband. The prophet Nathan had gone to him and said, Hey, king, I want to tell you about a rich man. This rich man had thousands of sheep. He had so many sheep. His neighbor only had one, and it was precious to him. He would carry it around and and, and, and swallow it like a baby. Well, this rich man, he had a neighbor, a friend that would come to his house. And when his friend came to his house, King David, 
the man, instead of killing one of his many lambs, went to his neighbor and stole his one precious lamb and killed it so that he could eat with his friend that came to visit. Hey, king, what should happen to this man? David gets angry. He says, well, that man must die, and he must die right now. Nathan looks at him and says, you are that man. And David, right there, he understood the magnitude of his sin. Now, there were consequences for David's sin. The child that was conceived died. Okay, there were consequences in David's life because of what happened. But he returned to the Lord. And he wrote Psalm 51 after this interaction with, uh, with Nathan. And I just, there's so many beautiful illustrations of repentance here. In verse 3, he says, For I know my transgressions, and my sin is ever before me. And verse 4, he says, Against you and only you I have sinned, so that your words are justified against me. And verse 7, he says, purge me or cleanse me with hyssop and I will be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. And verse 10, he says, create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. And verse 12, he says, restore to me the joy of your salvation. Uphold me with a willing spirit. And verse 15, he says, O Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. In verse 17, he says, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit and a contrite heart. You see, David repented. And he shows that we must return to God. We must acknowledge our sin and return to him. This is very similar to what it says in James chapter 4. He says, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded You see, this promise is illustrated again that when we draw near to God, when we repent, he will draw near to us. (coughs) Excuse me. Where we struggle is when we look at our situation and we look at the magnitude of sin, we look at the circumstance, we look at how far we are from God And we say, well, there's no amount of repentance that can close this gap. There's no way that I can restore myself into relationship with God. Well, you know what? You're right. But I want you to hear the promise that was spoken through God in Zechariah and through God through James as well. In Zechariah, it says, return to me, and I will return to you. He says, return from your wicked ways. Turn away from them. He says, to repent. And James, he says, draw near to me, and I will draw near to you. He says, cleanse your hands, purify your hearts. The requirement for us is to repent and to return. The promise of God is that he will restore You see, the promise, when I repent and I draw near to God, he and only he will restore relationship because only he can. We see this in the story of the prodigal son. Remember the prodigal son says to his dad, basically, I wish you were dead. Give me my inheritance now. His father gives it to him. He goes off and squanders it. 
He ends up broke. He ends up hungry. He's basically working for a man who uh, he's taking care of pigs, and he's so hungry that he wants to eat what the pigs eat. And he looks at his situation, and he comes to this realization. He says, not one of my father's servants lives this way. He says, I will return to my father to serve him. He says, I'm not going to return in the context of the relationship that I had. I'm going to come and I'm going to return in the context of service. And so in humility, he leaves his old way of life and he goes to his father, expecting to say to him, let me become your servant. What happens? The father sees him from a long way off. And he ran to his son. He ran to him. He bore the shame of his son's actions. You see, for a man to run, it was shameful. Because, you know, you've been to walk through Bethlehem. They wear cloaks. And so a man to run, he would have to lift up his cloak. He would expose his legs, which was shameful in that culture. But the father says, my son is over there. And if the townspeople get to my son before I do, they will stone him. Because they know what he did. So the father says, I will take the shame of his actions upon myself and I will run to where my son is. And what happens when he gets there? He he embraced him. He hugged him. He's demonstrating affection. He says, I love you like a child because you are my child. He puts a ring on his finger to say, you are part of my family. He puts a cloak on his back to say that you are under my protection. He puts shoes on his feet to say, you're not a servant, you're my son, and you're under my provision. He kills a fatted calf to say, you have been restored to my house. What we see is that when we repent, when we in humility say, that I must leave my old way of life and I return to God in humility. He is the one that restores relationship. He brings us into his family. We are his child. And the Bible is full of the promises for his children. It says in Psalms, I have not seen the righteous forsaken nor their seed begging bread. In Ephesians, it says he is able to do immeasurably more than we can ask or think. In Luke, it says he will give in good measure, pressed down, shaken together, and running over. In Philippians, it says he will meet our needs according to his riches and glory, and that we will have the peace of Christ. It will guard our hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. In James 1, it says that every good and perfect gift comes from God. In Jeremiah 17, it says, those who trust in the Lord will be like a tree planted by the water with no fear of heat or storm. In Isaiah 41, it says, we have no reason to fear because he holds us in his righteous right hand. In 2 Corinthians 9, it says, God is able to bless us abundantly. So we have everything that we need to do to accomplish his will. In Acts chapter 17, it says, in him we live and we move and we have our being. In Jeremiah 29, it says, he has plans to prosper us. He has plans to help us. He has plans to give us a hope that when we seek him with our whole heart, we will find him. In Isaiah 40, it says that God will raise us up on eagles' wings and to his presence and make us strong. In Psalm 41, it says that God will set us in his presence forever. And in Joel, he will restore the years that the locusts have eaten. 
Have the locusts eaten years in your life? Have they stolen what God has intended for you? Prioritize his presence. Prioritize being with him. Not having him around, but having him over you. Seek him only. And these things will be evident in your life. I was reading in one of my devotions this week. And in Jeremiah, it's talking about, Jeremiah is talking about the, the promise of Christ. And this beautiful foreshadowing in the prophecy about Jesus. And God speaks through Jeremiah and he says, Is it possible to break my covenant with the night and day? No. So as secure as the promise of we know it's going to be morning and we know that night will come, that is how secure the promises of God are for those that believe. You have hope this morning that you can experience life when you put God first in your life. So now is the time for revival. We cannot put this off any longer. I cannot delay. I cannot let the world shift my focus. I must put God first and prioritize his presence. So my question's for you. What have you prioritized above God? Are you living dissatisfied or are you content in God? Where do you need to repent and turn back to him? As we pray, I would just invite you to pray with me. Open yourself to God. Be vulnerable before him. He's probably already talking to you. He's probably already telling you what needs to change. And I would pray that you would respond to that word in this moment. Father, we come to you today and we love you. We worship you, God. I pray, God, that as we are here, that you confront us with that truth. You just make it ring in our ears. Let us feel your spirit just beating with inside of us, our hearts. Let your Holy Spirit work. God, I know that you're speaking to someone. I know that you are talking to them, that you are telling them, you are showing them where they have prioritized things above you, where they have set aside the things of your house. They have set aside the things of your kingdom and and prioritized themselves. They have sought the blessing instead of blessing you. (coughs) Forgive us, God. Forgive us for this. Show us, Lord what you would have us to do. Help us in every moment of every day to prioritize your presence, to put you first in our life, to seek you above and instead of everything else. God, we, we, in this moment, we surrender to you. We choose. God, we are inviting your presence and we invite and welcome the change that comes with your presence, God. Transform us by your glory. Transform us by your power. Transform us by your spirit. And in the things that you want to draw out of us, Lord God, let us release our grip on them and let us hold tight and hold fast and firm to your spirit, to your life, and to your word. Help us to no longer have God in our head, Lord, but let us have you in our midst. Let us have you in our life. Let us know you inside 
and out. God, we love you, and we thank you for the work that you are doing in this place. In Jesus' name, amen.